Let's turn then this morning to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And I will pick up where we left off last week. The book of Revelation was delivered by John through Jesus Christ to the church to encourage them during a time of persecution when they were wondering perhaps was the sacrifice they were making for Christ really worth it? So Jesus' message to them in Revelation as we've seen time and time again is remain faithful and be victorious for I am coming and when I come I will vindicate my name and I will vindicate you Everyone who knows that he or she is in the right because they are following Christ by faith, I will vindicate you and you will be eternally rewarded with endless joy. The one who's the conqueror, the one who's the victor in Revelation isn't the one who escapes wrath or I should say escapes persecution. It's the one sometimes that endures persecution and even dies as a martyr, but goes to be with the Lord and conquers death and Satan and everything because of what Christ has done. So we continue to read Revelation. that We see this tension building, waiting for Jesus to come and destroy his enemies and reign over the earth. And finally, we come to chapter 11 at the end of the chapter in connection with the seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet signaling the final judgment. This text that we've come to, starting in verse 15, is the announcement, the final announcement we've been waiting for of Christ's return. So John writes, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord, God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then, John says, God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. When I was in the ministerial class at Bob Jones University way back in the 1980s, it seems like years ago, several of us impressionable preacher boys were influenced by the ministry and teaching of one of our favorite professors, Dr. Mark Minnick. Some of his former church members are actually in our congregation this morning. Dr. Mark Minnick uh, transitioned from being the assistant pastor of Mount Calvary Baptist Church to becoming the senior pastor uh, when we were there at that time period. And of course, he's still there as pastor, most of you know. And he taught several classes, and, and, and one of the classes I took for him uh, from him was the Corinthian epistles. And we just loved listening to him teach and to dive in and go deep into these texts of Scripture. And naturally, there are a lot of things that you remember about a favorite teacher that, that sort of stand out when you look back even years later. And it was in one of these classes in 1 Corinthians that he, we were studying, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That means sleep in death. But we shall be changed, all of us, 
in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. If I can show you a timeline for just a quick second this morning, Paul here is referring to the rapture of the church that we are waiting for living in the church age, the time when Jesus returns and those who are in Christ, whether they have died or remain alive at his coming, will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. And all of us will be changed. We'll have a new body like Christ's body, a body that is designed to live forever on the new earth, and we will no longer be subject to sin. And after the rapture occurs, begins the seven-year tribulation period that we're reading about in Revelation. Most of Revelation is about this time period. And then, climaxing after that, we have the return of Christ to earth in power and glory to destroy his enemies and then to set up his promised kingdom. And after that, the new heaven and the new earth where we will dwell with God and the Lamb forever. In other words, as you're looking at this, this timeline chronologically, the rapture of the church when we are caught away out of the world to be with the Lord sets into motion the events leading to the kingdom. And it could happen at any moment. And Pastor Minnick was teaching on this text and he made the comment, you know, I could never appreciate the rapture. I could never really personally hope for Christ to suddenly return and snatch me away from the world to be with him until after I was married. And we thought about that for a second. We were like, uh, well, I mean, is everything okay? I mean, you want to get out of it that bad? You know, like, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I mean, is that your prayer every day? And so he hastened to add, now, I'm happily married, he said. You know, I love my wife. But he went on to explain there are just certain experiences that you want to have in life, certain goals you want to reach before the Lord takes you home. And he went on to say that the reason we feel this way about meeting the Lord, that we're not really that excited if we're honest with ourselves, is that we really have no comprehension of the pure joy and rest and fulfillment and peace and happiness that we will experience at that time. As Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians, our eyes have never seen and our ears have never heard and our hearts cannot even imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Well, let me take that a step further. One inability to really long for that final day is also tied to the fact that we don't want to let go what we have here on earth, which we think is so valuable to us. Our hopes and our dreams and our plan. I mean, we're having such a good time here. and We've got things really planned out, especially if you're younger in life. But Revelation was written to believers who, for many of them, Life was much harder than ours. In fact, many of them faced the real possibility of being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, I said uh, months ago now, uh, I mentioned several times that we don't really understand Revelation unless we read it as a believer who likely martyrdom is in our future. Then we really get what he's saying here. For them, the prospect of the Lord's soon return was indeed a blessed hope. It's just as much a blessed hope for us. But we need to realize why that is. 
So Jesus taught all of us to pray. Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done in an earthly kingdom just as it is done in heaven. And to pray that prayer for us means that we are asking God to put into motion those amazing events that he has promised that bring us to the end of the age through which we will be snatched away as his church and he will be vindicated and we will be vindicated as people because he will judge the wicked of the earth and he will reward the righteous when he returns to establish his visible political rule over the world. Now, why should we long for that kingdom? What makes this tangible for us? What makes us hope for it? Why should we have this burning desire? I said last week that there are at least four reasons uh, here in this text. There are many we could go to besides this text, but at least four of them here. First of all, the established kingdom is the visible fulfillment of God's promise. And we see this in verse 15. This is just a quick review of last week. The kingdom of the world, he says, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God has always ruled over the world. We saw that last week. But this kingdom will come into existence. It has a beginning point. Therefore, there must be something fundamentally different between the rule of God over creation for all time and the rule of God through this kingdom. This will be a visible, hands-on center of government in which Christ is on the throne, just like he promises in the Old Testament while the forces of darkness are banished from the earth. And what is only seen by faith afar off in our minds will finally become sight for all the world to see. And as people of faith, we should long for and rejoice in the hope of that actual visible fulfillment of what now we can only see by eyes of faith. There's another reason that's mentioned in this text, and that is the will of Christ will be asserted on the earth at this time. Verse 17 says, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And we should long for this to happen because what it means is that what pleases Christ will now be the rule over all the earth. Right now, what pleases Christ when we decide to do it is what makes us get odd looks from people because that's not normal. That's not natural. But when Christ rules, Our desire to please him will be what people desire on the earth for what is right and holy and good to be promoted throughout the world ought to be something we long for because what the Lord desires, we should desire. And even now, we should be able to say uh, to the Lord unhypocritically, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because in our own life, And in our own sphere of influence, we are already promoting the name of Christ, our Redeemer. The heavier we become about our sin and the sin around us, the brokenness and unrest, I think the more the coming of the Lord's kingdom on earth, his literal reign and his righteous reign ought to be the best news in the world, causing us to long for it. And maybe some of you feel this way. I I feel like the older I get, the more and more I appreciate, even so, come quickly Lord Jesus. Now, there is a third reason we should long for Christ's kingdom to come, and it's really the only one I'm going to talk about this morning because I got to working on this one and went way too long. So we're just going to do this one and observe the Lord's table, and the next time we pick this up, I will finish up uh, this service. But you're used to that anyway. I probably didn't even have to announce that. Uh, So here's number three. The moral balance of the world 
is put to rights. Think about that. When Christ reigns on the throne, the moral balance of the world is put to rights. And we see this in verse 18. Watch this. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, old and young, little and big, people that nobody knows about, but they're faithful believers living out their life for Christ in, in where God has placed them. And those who are up on the stage, whose names you know, who are preachers and evangelists all over the world, all of them, both small and great, will be rewarded. And it's the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. This is the moral restoration of goodness and truth and righteousness in the earth. It is God's justice meted out on the earth. All of the bad judged and all of the good rewarded perfectly and fairly. Now, why is that significant? Why is that so important? I'm going to take a few moments and explain it this morning. When God, the holy and just creator, made the world, he created the world, remember, with a perfect order and goodness with a pristine goodness. Remember what Genesis 1 keeps saying over and over again in the creation account as God looked at what he had made? He kept saying, and God saw that it was what? It was good. That is, God saw that it was morally right, beautiful, just, wholesome, lovely, and true. In fact, if you study Genesis chapter 1, you will see that there is this threefold pattern in God's creative activity. First of all, you'll see God commands. He said, he speaks. And then his creation always obeys, immediately responds to that command. And then we have the blessing on the earth. God pronounces that it is good. For instance, in Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then he says, God saw that the light was good. You see that? God commands, his creation obeys, and blessing fills the earth. God sees that it's good. And we can't take time this morning to work through Revelation, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 1, but if you did, you could see that God's command, the creation obeys. And in almost every instance, we have this explicit statement, it was so. And then we have God saw that it was good. And at the crowning part of the creation, he said, behold, it was all very good. But one day in the garden that God created, God's creation did not obey. God said to Adam, everything in the whole garden is yours. Take it. There's one thing I don't want you to do. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was not so. Because our first parents, Adam and Eve, brought the first disobedience into the world. And what happened is that the moral order of the universe, with its truth and beauty and goodness, and was broken. It was shattered. And it began to decay. And God could have restored, listen to this, God could have restored that perfect order in a moment by condemning Adam and Eve immediately to eternal judgment. 
but because of his love and his mercy and his grace, he promised that one day would come from the woman, one to put things back in order, to crush the serpent's head, to vindicate his righteousness and restore the moral order that God had created. So throughout human history, God has endured the sin of people and he has shown grace to innumerable nations and people groups and individuals, giving them a chance to turn to him and to bow to his son. In fact, the passage we just read in Revelation 18, uh, 11, 18 is a direct reference to a royal psalm in the book of Psalms that prophesies God's seating his Christ, his anointed one, on the throne to reign over the nations, to destroy those who will not bow to him and to reward those who will trust in him. That royal psalm I'm talking about, some of you might have already recognized it as we read through Revelation chapter 11, but it's Psalm chapter 2. And if you have a chance, I would love for you to turn there. I put the words on the screen for you as well. But I want to, I want to look all at, at Psalm 2, just read through the whole thing and just make a couple of comments here to connect what he's saying in Psalm 2 with, with Revelation 11, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 in part. So he says, why do the nations rage? You remember reading that in verse 18? Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. These are the ones who are set against God. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that is, his Christ. It's the Messiah in Hebrew, the Christos in Greek. It means the one who's anointed. He's chosen specially by God. He says, let us, they say, let us burst our bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. God's response, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. It means he scoffs at them because their rage is nothing to him. His anointed one will rule over them someday. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king, that's my anointed one, the Christ, on Zion, my holy hill. That's the temple mount where Christ will reign. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss The sun, which is a beautiful image of giving homage to a king. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And throughout human history, there have been those who have kissed the sun. They have followed God for salvation. And those who have refused to bow to him, and are waiting for their final judgment. And in the last day, the king reigns on his throne. And at that time, Hebrews, I'm sorry, uh, Revelation 11 says, at that time, that judgment will finally come. There are actually three distinct groups that we see here who are judged or rewarded in this text. 
First of all, it says the time for the dead comes, for the dead to be judged. These specifically are those who have died without faith in Christ, died without grabbing onto God for salvation. And at their time of judgment, every person on earth who has ever lived and not turned to God, their creator in faith, has already died. And at the end of the kingdom age, which Revelation 20 says is a thousand years, Revelation says Satan is released from the bottomless pit where he was put in earlier in, in chapter 20. And he will gather all those who oppose the king for one last final revolt. Thus we will see the nation's rage one last time. And all of the leaders of the earth who have rejected Christ's righteousness reign, righteousness and his reign will say, let us break away from his rule. And fire will come down from heaven, Revelation 20 says, and consume them in a moment. And then in Revelation 20, 12, John says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. What they had done on the earth over which the Lord now reigns in the body he had created for them to live on his earth. And I think it's significant that the books are opened at this judgment. At that judgment, the dead are judged by what they had done. And a lot of people on the earth who will not turn to Christ will say, you know what, I'm just trusting in my works. I'm trusting in what I have done to earn me favor with God. Well, the books will be open and what they have done will be read out. I'm not saying for all to hear and there's embarrassment and that kind of thing. No, 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 no. None of that will matter to anybody at that moment. But they will be looked at and the things they have done will be told to them. And the wrongdoing will be read out and the injustices and the crimes and the sins against other people for which there was no repentance and anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. One of the most horrible passages in all the word of God. But not only are the dead judged, notice in verse 18 again, this is also the time for the righteous to be rewarded. The reign of the king is the time for rewarding his servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear his name, both small and great. We've already looked carefully in the sermon series at the rewards of those who conquer in Revelation 1 through 3. But the promises are tied to his coming. And that's why Revelation twenty two twelve, Jesus declares, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, that is my reward, with me. Same word we find in Revelation eleven eighteen. I am coming, bringing my reward with me to repay each one for what he has done. And those who know the Lord will receive those rewards that the Lord by his pleasure chooses to give us according to how we have served him, according to what he has promised us. And we'll see much more about those later on in the series. I want to move on to this third category, and that is it's the time for the destroyers of the earth themselves to be destroyed. Who are these destroyers of the earth? I think as I read this text and look at the people who have already been judged, that these are Satan and his angelic servants who have been given power over the atmosphere, Ephesians chapter 2 says. He calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, who has 
his dominion on earth all these years, ruling over people, but underneath the, the perimeters that God has set up for him. And I think that because one of the names used either for Satan or one of his close associates back in Revelation 9, one of the names used there is Apollyon, which means destroyer. And because the judgment of the dead human beings has already taken place, this is probably the angelic evil host. And Revelation 20 says that after Satan deceives the nations and gathers the nations together against the Lord and is defeated, it says Satan is cast into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet have already met their final doom. This is the moral balance, the moral goodness of the world that God has created finally being put to rights after millennia of injustice against the creator and against those he has created. And we long for this justice, this moral goodness and truth to be restored because as image bearers of the creator, we have a nose for injustice, don't we? We know when justice is being perverted. I mean, a lot of you may be following the reports of the rise in crime in our nation in areas where they have defunded the police. Let's not pay the police anymore. Let's get them out of here. See what happens. That's a good plan. Innocent people are being killed every day, many of them children. You read about this. I mean, you can't open any news without seeing story after story on this. And many of these are in urban centers because the protection has been removed due to political pressure. And you think about those who have made those decisions and you think in your mind, they'll never answer for this. Our sense of justice comes up in our souls. So a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you read about this, but there was a man who was running for mayor in Atlanta who was reportedly running on a platform to defund the police. He at least voted against a $73 million uh, budget that they needed for the police department, and he, he voted against it. And this candidate for mayor after that was making a campaign stop, so he pulled his car over to the side of the road and got out, and a bunch of kids jumped in his car and stole it. <laughs> he didn't realize his car was on still, and these kids were 6 to 12 years old, and they fought him off and drove off of his car, and he was hanging on for about a block trying to get his car, and finally he dropped off because they were picking up speed, and he said, I'm going to kill myself, and they got away. And you know his first impulse was to say, where are the police? Somebody call 911. Oh, wait, I defunded them, you know? And, 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 and when we, we hear that, we're like, yes, you know, that our sense of justice, you know, it serves him right. Why are we like this? We're created in the image of God. We know what justice is. We don't often want it for ourselves, but we know when others should have it. We react this way because we have this sense of fairness. We're, we're capable of moral outrage, we hear of murders who are murderers who are released from prison before serving their full sentence, and then they, they go out and kill again. And we think, where's the, where's the justice? And in our political world, we have some public officials accused of crimes with a pile of evidence against them, and the media is not even paying attention. And then we have other officials who are accused of something, there's barely a shred of evidence, and it's the media's story every single day. And we think, isn't anyone paying attention to what's going on here? Why doesn't everybody else see what I'm seeing? And these are small instances, actually, of injustice when we compare them to the rest of what's happened in human history, I mean, let alone things that are taking place in other countries right this day, I mean, it staggers us 
to know the level of human atrocities that have been and are being committed throughout the world since the creation. Genocide, uh, sanctioned torture, slavery, trafficking, the atrocities of the mob and the drug cartel, people with no conscience who, who, who feel completely unaffected by the cries of others, rulers who enrich themselves while people suffer in poverty, and dictators and kings and others with some measure of authority over those around them, rejoicing and seemingly never pay for their crimes against humanity. In fact, all this is going on while the idea of a loving God who sent his son is marked, is, is mocked and despised by the intellectuals of our culture who, who feel like they are the self-important ones. And this is God's good world out of order. It is the moral compass pointing south instead of north. In fact, you remember Habakkuk's complaint to God at the beginning of his prophecy in Habakkuk chapter 1? This is a marvelous text to read right now, actually, the three chapters of Habakkuk. He starts out by saying, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, I'm seeing violence everywhere. God, aren't you seeing this? And you don't, you're not saving. You're not doing anything about it. Why do you make me see iniquity Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. You ever feel like Habakkuk when you look at the world? Lord, why aren't you doing something about this? But one day, God is going to do something about it. Unmistakably, he is going to put everything back to rights. When a righteous king is on the throne, Every wicked, unfair act will be judged. And those who faithfully serve the Lord will be rewarded. It is going to happen. And you know what the best news is of all for those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior? The best news is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will not ever be judged. That was the point of the cross. We who know the Lord, we who are already saved from the wrath to come, we will never experience this judgment. We will dwell with Christ forever in endless bliss. But I want you to think for just a second, as we rejoice in this truth, that little mechanism in your brain, in your spirit, that detects injustice, that moral outrage, that part of you that understands how wrong it is that some people get punished and others get off? When you hear what I just said, one of the things you ought to be thinking is, wait a minute, is this fair? Because I'm a sinner too. I've violated God's will. I've committed unrighteous acts and had unrighteous thoughts against the Creator. I'm not innocent. How can I escape condemnation and others do not? Maybe we don't think about it that much, do we? But I want to take that a step further. Can God be a righteous God and make unrighteous people righteous? Can, we let, can he let them go unpunished when they have violated his holiness? And the answer should be no. Because if God does not hold everyone to the same standard, he's an unrighteous judge. And if he's an unrighteous judge, he's in no moral position to judge the world. 
And if he's in no moral position to judge the world, he ceases to be God. He ceases to be who the scripture says he is. But the Apostle Paul anticipates this very objection in Romans 3. And if I can ask you to turn to one more passage before we go to the table, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, these very familiar words. People in the world object to Christianity by saying, how can a loving God condemn people to hell? Have you ever heard somebody say that? How can he be loving and do that? That's actually an easy question. It's answered in chapter 3, verse 23 of Romans. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the answer. We're all in need of judgment. We all stand condemned. Which means when the books are open and sins are read out, our sins ought to be read out and we ought to be condemned too. The harder question to answer is actually the one that Paul's anticipating here. How can God justify people who ought to be condemned? That's really the the harder question for God. And the answer to that question is our blessed hope. Because Paul says in verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God couldn't just say, you know, I feel sorry for those people. I'm just going to forgive them. No, he had to put forth an answer to how he could rightly, justly justify unrighteous people. That means that God gave us Jesus Christ and his death for our sins in place of our sins on the cross. God put him forth to be a propitiation, which I hope you know what that word means. It's a wonderful, theologically rich word that means in essence that Christ's work on the cross satisfied all of the righteous demands of God on our sin. They were satisfied. God's wrath was not needed upon us because of what Christ did for us so that when we simply embrace him as Savior, all of our sins are laid on him and his death pays for them all. Because it's true, God as a righteous judge can't overlook sin. He would cease to be God. But he pardoned us, he forgave us by looking at our sin and punishing Jesus Christ who hung on the cross in our place. Why did God do this? Paul says in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness, that he is a just God. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He did not immediately judge all the sin and wickedness of the world. And he doesn't do it today either immediately, giving people an opportunity to repent and to turn to him in faith. Aren't we glad for God's divine forbearance that he doesn't judge right away? The fact that he did not condemn us right away when we first sinned against him. So Christ was set forth so that the sins were punished and that Paul says in verse 26, this was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, that God is a just justifier, a just judge, because he justly condemns sin because of his holiness. And God is also a just justifier because he justly forgives sin 
because of Jesus Christ. And you and I, if you know Christ Jesus as your Savior this morning, we own this gift. This is ours for eternity and is never going to be taken away from us. When we simply ask God for forgiveness, trusting and believing in the sacrifice of Christ for our sins on the cross and his glorious resurrection. And it is that sacrifice that we celebrate as we observe the elements of the table for a few moments this morning. So let's pray and prepare.